Keep it simple, silly. That was the, uh, keep it simple, silly. That was the advice or the, the, the command that I was given by my construction boss. I was doing HVAC a long time ago, except he didn't use the word silly, but it's family service. So I'm using the word, keep it simple, silly, is what he used to say to me. And what he meant by that was, why do two cuts if one will do? Right? Why go around something if you could just go through it? Keep it simple and everything will work out a lot better. I think one of the things that happens when we grow up is we tend to overcomplicate things in our lives. We can add things to our schedules to make our lives even busier. So we find ourselves running around and anxious because we have too many things on the go. Or we add things to our budget, if we, if we even have a budget, right? Uh, we can add things, we can start spending and, and lock ourselves into things and all of a sudden we start feeling financially restricted. We can make things too complicated or we can go the other way. We can go through a season of winnowing where we start to subtract people who have made an impact in our lives, people that we love and, and we depend on, we can start to subtract them or subtract events or, or things in life, like coming and, and worshiping God with, with our community or other such things. We can start to subtract those out and then we start to wonder why we can feel all alone or that we're missing something in life. This morning I wanna to talk to you about something really, really simple. Really, really simple. I wanna give you actually the, the simplest foundation for a joyful life. Now, I'm not talking about an issue-free life because that doesn't exist. A problem-free life, that doesn't exist. But the simplest way that anyone can live a fulfilled life, and we can do that starting today. See, I say that I have something to say, but it's actually Paul who who wrote this. We're continuing our series in in the book of Philippians. If you want to turn there, I'm going to be reading today out of the New Living Translation. So you can listen to me. The words will be up there eventually. You can read it on there. There's a Bible in the back if you don't have one. Phones, tablets, whatever you got to do. It's all good. So we're in this series and we're looking at joy. It's the title of the series. And we're going to be doing that from chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. But first, I need a volunteer. Is there someone who is maybe this tall or shorter, who likes math? Do we have anybody here who likes math? I need someone young who likes math. I know this this was a gamble. (laughs) We can't continue until I have a volunteer who is okay with math. There's going to be easy questions, I promise. No, but they've got to be small. They've got to... Will someone please? I promise I won't bite. All right. Are you sure? Okay. I get Mike, Mike is going to be Mike's is going to be my volunteer. All right. So Mike, what I need you to do is I need to take this. Yeah, you're going to need two hands. Uh, you might be able to get away with just the marker, but okay. First, what I need you to do is don't write it down. I want you to think of a number between one and ten. You got it? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make, I'm going to make a prediction. 
I'm going to make a prediction based on that. So I'm not going to guess your number. I'm going to make, I'm going to make a prediction based on that. I'm going to take that. I'm going to fold it up. And I'm going to give it to you. Okay? So put it in your pocket. So I can't, everyone see, I can't touch it. Okay, now I want you to take your number and I want you to write it down. Yeah, yeah, you can write it down. It's all because I can't do anything from here on out. Everybody saw I put it in his pocket. Okay, so it's nine. Okay, so now I want you to double it. So we're doing math here, right? It, probably about halfway, you can, you'll be done. So you can double it. Okay, how's that? Is this math good? Jack? Does that sound? Okay, now I need you to add six. Are we, are, we try, are we good? Okay, now I need you to uh, cut it in half. So divide by two. That's the technical term, is cut in half. I'm a math magician, not a mathematician, okay? So we have 12. Now I need you to minus this, your original number, from there. But don't do it out loud yet. Do you want to come out? Do you, look, in, look in your pocket. And I want you to write down this number. Can you do that? So you're taking this and minusing this. What's, what's on the page? Give me a round of applause. Uh, thank you. <laughs> All right, you did a great, thank you very much. I'm gonna need you to hang on though. That's not bad, eh? Okay, so you can erase that. That had absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. That was just for fun. We're gonna move on to this next part though. We're gonna keep with the math. So what happens when you add nothing to a number? Like, so go one plus zero. What does that equal? That equals one, right? What about, what about two plus zero? Two? Really? Oh, yeah, it does. It does. Okay, two. What about three plus zero? That can't possibly... Really? Oh, it, you're right. It does. Okay, so three. So anything plus zero, it equals the number, right? Okay, so that's, that's our first principle. The second thing, now this is less math. That was really good math. This is less math, more theology, okay? So we need to put our theology hats on. What is Jesus worth to us? Like, what, what is Jesus, another way of putting it, what has Jesus done for us? What's a, what's a one word that you can think of Jesus has done for us? That, that's, that's like a, that's, that has to do with an amount. Everything. All. everything. All. Yeah. We're going to go with everything. So let's write down. So we're going to now take our two principles. So something plus zero equals the first thing, right? Okay, so if Jesus equals everything, we're going we're gonna to combine our two principles. So Jesus, and we're going to do words, so plus nothing. What does that equal? Everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Mike, you have been an amazing volunteer. There is candy in the back for you. Hey, thanks, Mike. You can, you can grab a seat. I'll hang on to this. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is our big idea for tonight. If you forget everything else that I'm going to say, this is what I want you to remember. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is what Paul is going to be getting at 
in these 11 verses, and it is arguably the most important thing as believers that we can remember. In fact, I want us to all say it together. You guys ready? One, two, three. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we're going to walk back through these 11 verses and see how we can really keep it simple. Keep it simple when it comes to our source for everything. So starting in verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. I love this verse. I really, really love this verse. Listen, friends, if you ever struggle with faith, or if you struggle with Christianity as a whole because you don't like the kind of stuff that Christians do, or there's stuff in the Bible that makes you wonder if it could all be true, this, at least the first half of this verse, is for you. I mean, it's for everybody, but it's particularly for people who struggle with the peripheral parts of faith. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is the most important thing. Rejoice, Paul's saying, in the only thing that matters, the thing that is foundational. So let's take all of the things that we patch our lives together with, all of the things that we look to to make us happy, all the things that we think will ensure our life will have meaning, and let's put that stuff aside and let's rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. But Paul says this isn't so easy for us all the time. And in fact, he gives a warning. Right away, what, after saying what's most important, he gives a warning. Verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who, you, or who say you must be circumcised to be saved. So we notice right here three things. One, He's talking about salvation. So straight away, we're not talking about Christian living. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about salvation, what it takes to be with God in eternity, okay? The second thing, Paul is using a word, the word dogs here. He's not just being mean and calling names. This isn't the, the schoolyard where he's, he's just mocking them. He's relying on imagery that was common at that point to illustrate the type of behavior that they were doing, what they were doing. And so the third thing is when he says the mutilators of the flesh, he's talking about circumcision. Those who circumcise themselves, who say that you have to be circumcised to be saved. See, these, these people that he's talking about, they weren't necessarily going around and saying, you need to do this and trying to get people. It's not a movement necessarily that was going on. They were participating in this behavior. And then when people were asking why, they're saying, well, you need to do it to be saved. This is just, this is what we do. They're, but they're, what they're doing is they're hanging on to something that they think will work that does not work. They think that they are going to be able to use that to get them to God. See, when you look at the world's religions, Religions that believe in a God or, or have some sort of a, a, a deity, every single one of them has an idea or people inside of it that teach you this is how you get to God. If you do this, this, and this, worship this way or do this thing, this will get you to God. Christianity, on the other hand, says there's no way to get to God. Let me say that again. There is no way that you can chase God, corner him in the, in the corner like a rat, and then kind of 
wrestle him into submission, make him love you. I, I just took my car in uh, a couple weeks ago and there was a giant, humongous rat in it and the people at the garage had to chase it into a corner and catch it. You can't do that with God. You can't chase him into a corner like some rat. We, that's not how it works. Just like the citizens of Babel, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, with the story of Babel, Babel was this group of people who thought that they had ascended spiritually to a point where they didn't need God anymore. They were going to build a tower. They were going to make their name great. It was going to be their coming out party. They were going to ascend to new heights and tell God where to go. But things didn't work out quite the way they wanted it. God destroyed the temple and he scattered them. But just so just like the citizens of Babel discovered, you can't build a tower or in the case of Jack, a beanstalk tall enough to climb up to reach God. It's not going to happen. You can't make God appear like if you rub a lamp like a genie. You can't get him to submit to doing your will if you guess his name like Rumpelstiltskin. He comes to us first through relationship, as we read the Old Testament, to the people of Israel. That's how God first comes to his people. Of course, he makes himself known. See Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, but he comes to himself in a, in a relational way through the people of Israel. And then as a little baby, the perfect image of God for us to behold and to look to for everything. So we don't go to God. He comes to us. And that's who we worship. Verse 3, Paul says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. So we just need to, to quickly flesh out what he's talking about when it, as it pertains to circumcision. No? Okay. So before it flesh out, yeah, this is kind of a tenuous at best. Before Jesus, circumcision, essentially what it acted on, to get really simplistic, what circumcision did, it was an outward side of an inward reality. The people of God were, were to be circumcised, men, were to be circumcised in order to show that they were covenant partners with God, that they were in obedience to God. And, and later on, it became uh, known that there was supposed to be some circumc or circumcision of the heart, where there was supposed to be heart change. But people quickly realized, and, and you will too if you read through the Old Testament, that heart change wasn't possible under the law. The law can't change hearts. The law can change behavior. It can influence our behavior, but it can't change our hearts. After Jesus came and, and he provided that perfect image of God for us to emulate, he, he reconciled us through the forgiveness of sins, and then he defeated death, destroyed death. Circumcision has come to mean something else, and that's a change of heart. Our hearts are actually able to change through the work of the Spirit in our lives as we ask for forgiveness of sins, receive it, and follow after Christ. That is the circumcision that Paul's talking about. This is the true circumcision. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and that's why we, as Paul says, if we are followers of Jesus, we rely on what Jesus has done for us. So, to finish off verse 3, we put no confidence in human effort. 
can't build a tower. We can't get our way up there. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, says Paul, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. So what Paul's going to do now is he's going to list the things that should have been able to get them to God. This was the idea is that if, as long as we do X, Y, and Z, we're, we're good with God. So Paul says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience of the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. See, for, for the Jewish folks, there was quite a list of things to do. I, th- I think in our culture now, I, I believe that the line you have to get by is to be a nice person. I think that, so all that stuff we just read there, that's today in our culture, if you're a nice person and, and not Hitler, you, you get in, right? That's sort of how it works. It's the, it's the whole, well, at least I'm not Hitler rule. We, we always compare ourselves to the absolute worst because, I mean, where's the line? when we're thinking of what it actually takes to be able to get in. It's either Mother Teresa is, is on one side, Hitler is on the other, and then somewhere there's a line that, that we're on the good side of. That's typically how it works in our culture. See, for them though, before Jesus, there was the law. There was something, the law, and the law, very simplistically speaking, was given so that we could see, people could see their need for a savior. Yes, it had practical, uh, practical applicability, right? Don't murder people is awesome for keeping communities together, right? So if you follow that, it's good for community, not to be, you know, being all murdery. But people we can see could never measure up against the perfection that was seen in the law. We, we needed Jesus to be able to come and do that for us. Sure, we could try to get it done with Jesus because they, they did for years and years. They had the temple sacrifices. And in fact, tonight, just in case, if somebody wants to give that a shot, I, I asked someone to bring a chicken and just in the, and a knife. And so we, anybody feeling like did anything wrong and want to, no, no takers? Okay, Mike, you don't want to volunteer for this one? Just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to be reinstating, reinstating temple sacrifices. Uh, but for good reason, though, God had told them to do that. It was, it was always a sign pointing towards Christ. This was necessary for them to uh, learn about God and to see their need for a Savior. The problem is, though, is that the people of Israel clung to this reality. They clung to this Salvation, this mode of salvation is their only hope for salvation. Paul says so right here, verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable. Talking about all of these things he had to work to. I thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because what, of what Christ has done. So what, what has Jesus done? Everything. Jesus has done everything. He's taken care of all of the, the big list and more. In the Old Testament, 613 laws. Done, right? Jesus took care of it. See, I don't know about you guys, but I, I personally don't know everything. And I know that's probably shocking. You're like, oh, mind blown. 
I also can't do everything. Uh, we recently uh, moved, Sarah and I recently moved this week, and we're living on a, a different farm, and they're uh, doing blueberry harvesting and, and stuff like that now, and, and there's like cows and, and all this stuff, and so I, I, I love it. It's, it's so peaceful and it's, it's beautiful, and, but I'm getting to watch people do things that I can only like imagine doing. I have a lot of respect for farmers and for things that people can do with, with different machines or, or the animals and all that, it, it is amazing. Even some things that I thought I could do. Like, I, I, know, I know how to drive a forklift. I've done it before. But yesterday, I was watching this guy drive around on a forklift, and it was like an extension of himself. It was like he was going around and picking up stacks of blueberries with his arms, giant metal arms, and putting them in places. It was so smooth. So you could, he, these people can do things that I, I can only dream of doing. But, and this is where the illustration kind of falls apart a little bit, right? Because, I mean, given enough time, maybe I can learn, maybe not. But, it, but at least it's possible. But when it comes to saving ourselves, nobody, nobody knows how to do that. I know I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to start. How do you get to God? You can't, right? We, we don't get... To him. But I do, or I can remember what it's like to be apart from him. I can remember what it's like to try to use a worldview to try to get to him, and the failure and the dejection that comes from that. So can Paul. He looks back at things that he thought mattered, that he thought were the most important things to do, and he did them his entire life. And he looks back at those things now, these things that he thought could save him, but now he has a different opinion about them in light of what Jesus has done. And what's Jesus done? Everything. Yes, verse 8. Everything else, says Paul, is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So we, we can't see this because of the way it's translated, uh, but these are very, very, very strong words that Paul is using to describe what his past things are. See, this, this word garbage, it, it has a bit of a spectrum, and it can mean anywhere from something like refuge, refuse, but, but the way he's using it here and in the context, it's further along the spectrum. So it goes probably back past dead bodies and to the area of poop, essentially. But, it, but a, a stronger much more forceful, much more shocking way of saying that. So it's, it's not even something, it's not something you'd want to throw in a junk drawer, it's not something you'd want to ever put in the garage and maybe you'll use it one day down the road. It is absolutely useless, it's, it's disgusting, you don't want any part of it. So I was mentioning that Sarah and I just moved and that, did you guys know that the place we used to live in, it actually, it had a dungeon in it, a dungeon. I don't know how many people know this, but I was walking through it the other day with the, with the current owner, and, and I showed it to him. 
the, the dungeon. And we used to keep, it's under a trap door, and we used to keep it hidden underneath a table. And so we went to go get into the dungeon, because I want to show them, it's, it's quite spooky, as you can imagine, as most dungeons are. And so we went to go into it, and there's this rope that you have to use to pull up the trap door to get in the dungeon. And so he grabs it and pulls, but then the rope like disintegrated basically in his hand and he couldn't pull it up. It was crazy. So this thing that we were depending on to get us where we needed to go, it was actually, it turned out to be useless. I'm just kidding, it wasn't actually, it's not really a dungeon. It's a, it's a, it's a crawl space underneath the house. But this thing that we needed to be able to get underneath it, it, it all of a sudden was useless. It was nothing that we thought it was. We needed a better way. See, Paul, he's discarded, he's subtracted his old ways of trying to do what he wanted to do, and that's please God. He's gotten rid of that stuff. He subtracted it because they were useless. These things that he has been doing, they're useless in compared to what Jesus has done. This same Jesus who Paul wants to become one with. How do you become one with Jesus, Paul? Continuing on in, in verse 9. I no longer count on my righteousness through obeying the law. That's, what, that's how you become one with Jesus. I do not count on my own righteousness for obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus. What else do you got to do? You gotta, have the right theology? Is it Jesus plus right theology equals everything? Is it Jesus plus doing the right stuff, like acting the right way, equals everything? I know this is, it's uneasy, right? Like we, we think about Christian living and we want to say, well, yeah, you got to do stuff, right? That's our, that's our instinct is, well, you got to do this or you got to think that. That's all Paul's saying. Faith in Christ. And that's it. I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on how many things? Nothing, right? It's just, it's faith. Just, I put my trust in Jesus and that's it. Faith in Jesus. We don't get to him. He comes to us and he offers us life eternal. It is, it is, it's literally that simple. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience this mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So he finishes this part of the letter. Now, now that we've made it through, I want to point out the level of importance that Jesus had, just in case we're missing it, how valuable he is to Paul and to the church, how valuable Jesus is to us. Going through these 11 verses, Paul first says, rejoice in the Lord. That is the bottom line, rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We don't rely on anything else. Paul says, I once thought that these things were valuable, these things that I were doing to save myself. Now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Next thing, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as poop so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I can no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I have become righteous through faith in Christ. And finally, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. 
And what happens because of all this? Paul says it. People experience that mighty power here and now. And as, as if that's not enough, experience the resurrection from the dead. Live forever with God. See, Paul says he traded in his old way. He subtracted it, lives in utter disbelief at what he now has instead. Have you ever upgraded an old cell phone to a new one? Has anybody here had that joy, that, that wonderful joy of getting that shiny new phone? See, before the trade in the phone, it was pretty good, unless it was all smashed to bits. But most of the time, I know one time, I was like, yeah, this is a perfectly good phone. But the, the phone company's like, well, you have to do a, a thing. And I'm like, okay. So I, I'm trading it in. I had a phone that had buttons, real buttons. And then all of a sudden, they're like, here's this phone that's a touchscreen. And wow, it's like, it was a whole new world, right? Like, ah, I don't have to put, I can talk to it and dial my phone, right? I don't even have to push buttons, Siri, do this, right? And just like my little phone slave. This, what Paul's talking about, is better than that. I know it's, it could be hard to believe, but it is better than that. How about this? Have you ever been in a toxic relationship with somebody? With a friend or, or, or somebody else? And they didn't want what was best for you. They continually were dragging you down. And then you were able to move on and found somebody else, somebody who actually loves you and treats you well. The feeling that comes from that, from actually being valued and treated with gentleness and respect, this is better than that. Imagine any time that, like me, you've married up, or friended up, or technologied up, or homed up, or whatevered up, worldviewed up, like the way that you look at the world, all of a sudden you started looking into it in a new way and all of a sudden things started to maybe make a little bit more sense and then put all of that stuff that we can take to make ourselves feel better or that actually do even make us feel better, put that alongside trusting Jesus to make the image of God inside of our hearts whole again and the scale tips in the favor of Jesus every time. Jesus is better than all of that other stuff. Why? Because all of these other things that we can put our faith and trust in, they don't last. They didn't create us. They didn't know us from time eternal. They will never satisfy to the level that Jesus can because they don't love us perfectly. He's seeking us out for his glory, not becoming a tool for us to use for ours. So here's what I want us to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you today, right now, to take in your mind anything that says you need to be good enough, act good enough, be smart enough, be generous enough, or whatever enough, and I want you to subtract that. Subtract that thinking from your mind. Get rid of those. But Chris, don't I have to do this or that? Remember, we're not talking about post-salvation. We're talking about what it means to rest in Jesus. And yes, you could say, well, I already think I'm saved. That's awesome. But often we don't rest in that. We think that we still got to continually earn God's love and earn God's favor every day. 
that we have to get back into his good graces if we screw up. But you never leave God's. Once you're there, you're there. Amen? <laughs> See, Paul goes to this idea. That was awesome. Better than I could have hoped. See, Paul goes to this idea of heaven because that's where the train goes for those who put their faith in Jesus. But make no mistake, the ride, it, it starts a lot sooner. You don't have to wait to die to get on that train. Subtracting out all those things that we look to for, uh, and making Jesus the sole provider for our salvation, for our meaning, for our purpose, and for our joy. That's the kind of divine math that really adds up to an amazing life and beyond. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you made it simple for us. That coming to you is a matter of realizing that we need you. Seeing you in our day-to-day life. Seeing the grace that you give us. And then asking you to forgive us. Lord, it's your grace. It's faith in you that heals us and is the only thing that's going to heal this world. So, Father, we pray that we can rest in that. I'm so thankful that so many people have already come to you. But, Lord, it is so hard to sit there, to stay there, to know that we are indeed loved by you and your children. And so, Lord, help us be able to rejoice in you. Help us be able then to take that and to tell other people about it. You don't have to do X, Y, and Z in order to come to you. You can't do that. Help us know that. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. In your name, amen.